From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue in Quick and Easy, Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games. I'm Stephen McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson. I, too, make nice games. In this episode, we talk about agile development with Eric Johnson and the ins and outs of an iterative development strategy. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> hey. Mark is still not here. Yes, but Ellen is here instead. I am st- I am still not Mark, but I am still here. <laughs> and our guest today, you are well acquainted with. <laughs> yes, our guest today is my husband, Eric. Hi, good to be here. <laughs> so, uh, first thing I want to ask is, what, what, what do you do during your day job? Yeah, so... Um, I roll with kind of whatever title is best uh, to go with whatever business I'm working with. Okay. Um, so I've been, you know, a strategy consultant, I've been an agile coach, I've been a scrum master. Um, basically, in reality, what I do though is I work to create high performing teams. Ah. Um, and I work to help um, corporations and small businesses to uh, create work environments that are more conducive to creative work. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And that's good, especially if we're talking about agile development, because like, I think that almost as a society, we've moved on, moved away from like waterfall development. Um, oh, I wish that were the case. Is that not the case? No, it's not oh, the case at all. No. I'm glad no. that's been your experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe it's just me. Um, I guess uh, one thing we should ta- uh, discuss is like the difference between agile and waterfall development. So, um, Waterfall development, you know, I don't want to go into the whole history of it, but it Mm. came from a paper uh, written about um, kind of project management and things like this. And there was this graphic at the end that had the phases of of what he called waterfall development, which was like requirements, gathering analysis, you know, all the big spiel. Yeah. Um, And that graphic was was um, something that a lot of people appealed to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing was in his paper, um, I, I'm the author of this paper is kind of uh, escaping my memory here, but we'll link he, in he the con- show notes. Yeah. He concluded with, with saying, do not do this. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. So, um, and, and as you know, no one reads. So <laughs> they, they look at the pretty graphics. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> so that, that pretty graphic, which had the little steps that looked like a waterfall mm-hmm. that got seized by a bunch of people who were, you know, really well-meaning and um, tried to go out and build this sort of project management strategy around it. Um, now, waterfall development or well, development is, is not the right word. Waterfall project management. Um, it really does have its places. Um, and, and, it was kind of the way that we built things before software, right? Okay, yeah. So, um, for instance, building a bridge, right? You want to have this huge upfront requirements gathering process, know exactly what's needed, exactly the length of the bridge you need, how many pylons you need to hold that bridge up, how many tons of concrete, there are all of that stuff, right? Yeah. You need to have a lengthy analysis phase to make sure that's going to suit all the needs of your customer, all these things, right? And then when you start work, it might be years into it because you've built this really comprehensive thousands page long project document, right? Right. Um, and then you're expected when you're hiring contractors that they understand all of the time schedules and everything like this. And you have a budget because you've already planned out all the materials you're going to need and everything like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great for building bridges, for building roads, for doing big infrastructure projects yeah, yeah. or even just durable goods. Right. But here's the thing. When you're working on a bridge, you have a bunch of benefits. You're, you can't suddenly have a competing bridge pop up out of nowhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, your customer can't suddenly decide they don't want a bridge, they want a ferry. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't suddenly um, find out that there was this brand new bridge building technology that came out yesterday and no one knew was coming. That completely changes everything. Yeah. Right. So this old way of doing project management was very, very good for these large uh, you know, projects like that and still is. It's mm-hmm. the way that that's done still today. Um, but in software uh, and really almost any creative discipline, it's a lot different. We're dealing with different uh, inputs into kind of the system. And, you know, you can have customers suddenly decide, you know, no, I don't want this thing. I want something completely different. Right. You know, they, they, I mean, on a whim, they can just completely change. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have new technology that comes out that all of a sudden what you were doing before is needless. You could have a competitor that was very secretive and all of a sudden drops their product that literally is your thing and you're halfway done. And now it's like, oh, this is worthless. What do we do with it yeah. to salvage it into something usable? So in that kind of world, that huge upfront planning process is almost always wasted mm. because you might, you know, spend six months making this 200 page plan, uh, document plan to, um, you know, build this beautiful software. But while you were spending six months, your competitor was already building it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so in agile development, we try to get to building workable product as quickly as possible. Sure. That um, makes sense. A lot, of, a lot of clients that I work with, it's, you know, within a few days. We get in and it's like, all right, here's the team. Here's enough of a backlog to get going. And we start. And you plan and you require, you uh, requ- get, gather requirements and you analyze. And all those phases are happening all the time throughout the entire process and with the information that you know at that given time. Okay. Makes sense? Yeah. yeah that, that totally makes a lot of sense. In sense, the whole pur- purpose uh, to steal uh, a phrase from one of my agile mentors is that you're looking to be able to uh, turn on a dime for a dime. That makes sense. <laughs> That's a good phrase. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. The story about how the waterfall was kind of a joke thing reminds me of Rami Ishmael tells the story about how he gave a talk at GDC or something about a totally fake way to organize a company Mm -hmm. but it wasn't translated correctly into another into uh, like arabic or something and so this he found this company he was going around talking to different people and he found this company who saw his talk didn't get that it was a joke and so organized their company in this totally bonkers way that was supposed to be like a metaphor for something else but they didn't get that it was lost in translation so like they were doing it this completely weird way and he's like no oh no Isn't, isn't there a, a Monty Python sketch about that, uh, Life of Brian or something, where it's like the, they start worshiping a shoe or something because mm-hmm. their prophet took off and left the shoe there. And it's like, oh, now we're all worship the shoe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious that like that is how people came up with or decided to work on waterfall stuff is this warning. And to be to be completely clear, they were already doing this stuff. They were, oh, that's sure. how project management was done for a long time. Yeah. It was just in that particular paper, he was basically saying, "Don't do this stuff." Okay, that makes sense. So what? Wait, so agile development is more about like iterating and process and making sure you have products that you can change quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's about making the decisions at the last responsible moment. So you don't commit money and budget and things to features that are way far out. Mm-hmm. You try to only release those kinds of things as close as you are to the point when they're ready to go live. So you're always able to periodically look at what you're doing, look at your customer base, look at what you're building, and always be able to change, yeah. right? You might discover through the development process that the product you thought you wanted all of a sudden there's some core like mini piece of it that you're like, wait, this thing right here, this is actually the most valuable piece of all of this. Let's shed all the rest of it. We don't care about that. Let's just do this one small thing. Mm-hmm. 
And if you were bound to some, you know, hundreds pages long project document, that kind of um, agility to use the the word um, just isn't possible because you've got investors that have invested money based on this 200 page document. You've got, you know, um, all these business leaders that are expecting to get it done and these timetables and all these different things. But when you're working on an agile team, those kinds of ideas can come alive and you can have that kind of more spontaneous uh, creativity happening. Oh, okay. That's interesting how you brought up like how people already signed on to like as a business, they've already signed on to what you were planning on doing. Right. Um, how does that work when you're doing agile development? I guess like maybe they have a general idea of what you're trying to build, but they don't have specifics or. Yeah. So another kind of key thing in, in agile development um, at kind of the company structure level mm-hmm. is sort of a separation of the, of the why, the what's and the how's, okay. right? Okay. So sort of at your um, leadership level. So in saying some mid-sized companies, say 500 people doing software development, right? Um, your C-level employees, you, they are the people that are determining kind of the why. They're like, why are we in business? Mm-hmm. That's it. They don't decide what, they don't decide how. Okay. They stay at the why level. So they're looking at, you know, um, if you're doing, you know, uh, mass email delivery, they're, they're, your why might be, we want to be able to facilitate communication between human beings, mm-hmm. right? Um, so they're staying at that why level. And then uh, underneath them, you've got people that are working on kind of the what's and the how's. And in a properly structured agile organization, it's very flat. So you're not going to have, you know, five, six, seven layers of management, even if you get really large. Typically, it's, you know, you have your, your Y level, and then your next thing is you've got maybe some intermediate managers, but then you've got dev teams. Mm-hmm. And um, particularly in Scrum, which is the discipline I work mostly in, but uh, not solely, um, you have a product owner who decides the what. So they're the person that, that owns the backlog of items. They own everything that's going to translate that Y vision of the, of the executive leadership into yeah. a what, okay. right? And then the people that determine the how is the dev team themselves. Sure. So each one of those three pillars, they stay out of each other's way, mm-hmm. right? So the dev team doesn't get to question the CEO or the C-level executives on why we're in business. The uh, product owner doesn't you know, get to determine how the work gets done. And the CEO doesn't even get to determine how the work gets done. It's all putting those responsibilities onto the people that know best how to answer those three questions. Okay. And so as a result, like if somebody were to invest in your business, they would have those questions answered in some way to be able to know right, that right. profitable in some way. Yeah. So, you know, um, if you're looking, you know, for, if you're at a kind of a small team trying to go pitch investors and, you yeah. know, say for a video game, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, um, on a truly agile team, you wouldn't give them a vision of what the end product looks like. Okay. You would talk about, um, you would talk about kind of the mechanics that you're thinking about using and the kind of experience that you're looking at delivering and sort of the why, right? Mm-hmm. We want people to be able to uh, do some fun platformer where they play as a ferret, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and they cause mayhem and, you know, destruction and all kinds of fun stuff. But mostly we want it to be a really fun platformer where you can't die and it's very like friendly to the user. Yeah. That's already been made. Just... I understand. I'm not trying to steal your thunder. Um, but at the investor level, you would keep it there. And one of the, the key things about agile development and whether it's Scrum or Kanban or anything is incredibly frequent uh, communication between the business people and the development people. So okay. ideally on a daily, multiple times a day basis. Um, so when I build teams, I always have somebody that's from the business side of things mm-hmm. available or even in the room most of the day. So wow. like the product owner is um, in a properly structured scrum or agile business. They're a leadership level person. Yeah. You know, their decision on what's getting built is final. 
the CEO can't even come down and say, nah, you're not building the X, Y, or Z feature because mm-hmm. they're up at that Y level, right? right? Now, the product owner is delivering things that don't line up with that Y. They may not be having a job for very long, mm. but in each one of those realms, those individual people are king of their own you know, domain. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, and that tracks a lot with like how video games are made. Like you don't, init- you don't normally start out with like a whole concept done. You have an idea of what you want to build and you create that fin- finished product as you like develop your game and as you iterate off of the, off of the initial concept. Right. Now, the interesting thing about agile development, um, and especially Scrum, mm-hmm. um, is that it's product development, not project management. Okay. So that's a huge delineation that a lot of people don't get uh, sometimes. Okay. First, let's kind of talk about the difference between a product and a project. So a project has a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Right. It, it has a limited budget, maybe not, maybe it's flexible, but it does have like constraints. It's like, this is, you can clearly see the beginning of it. You can see when the development's happening and you can see this is the end, mm-hmm. right? And the team is working on it might not even be, be, you know, having any work anymore. Maybe they go back to the bench and they work on a different project later, yeah. right? Agile is most suited for product development. So something that doesn't have uh, a fixed lifetime. Okay. So, you know, think things like, LinkedIn, right? Or um, maybe a big MMO like World of Warcraft, if you're on the video game side of things, where you're delivering a consistent product, there is no end to it. You're not just shipping out your widget at the end. Yeah. Um, It continues on. Okay. Yeah. So, like, we've started doing agile development at our place, and I know we're doing it wrong in some ways. (laughs) Largely because, like, we, I mean, we, we didn't, we were always like flexible about how we would work on stuff and change things as, as appropriate, but we never like formalize it. And now we're starting to formalize it because my company is trying to go public. Sure. Um, and so, uh, the and this form- is your day job. Yes. At my okay. day job. Yeah, no, I'm definitely not doing this. <laughs> well, we're going to, it's like, I didn't know that, uh, you know, any your, your little studio projects and things had gone to the point where you're going public. <laughs> how do I get out of this IPO here? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, at my day job, we've been trying to do this and be more formalized about it. But I think that our our formalizing process has also impeded with the way that I have grown accustomed to working on stuff. So um, tell me about that. Tell me, like, what are you accustomed, how are you accustomed to working and how is that um, coming into conflict? Yeah, sure. So I guess basically during work, like every day I will, uh, I'll have like a list of things that I plan on working on that day and then I will work on them and as stuff comes up, I'll add, add things to this list or remove things to the list as, um, priorities change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, what has changed with it now is like we need to plan out what we're planning on working on for two weeks, the whole sprint. Yep. Um, instead of, you know, like the day to day thing. Okay. So I guess like I feel less flexible, um, about, the amount like the things i can work on yeah yeah so in that kind of old way of working um did you have some kind of like uh board or something that new work was coming into and you would just check what the next thing that was coming in was how would you receive work um i i determined what i would work on (laughs) (laughs) um and so like yeah i had i have a whiteboard that i write tasks that i i come up with and I, i i'll note them like as I'm working on a thing, I'm like, oh, you know what? We should make the shield sound better or something. So I'll write that down as a thing I need. Right. To and so, yeah, I'll, I'll look at that list when I finished with the current task I worked on and then remove the task I just did and then work on a new task on that list. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of eyes here. Um, how, where's your team in all this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> good question. Uh, we are like the way that development works at my place is kind of just have like a team of two or three. You have a developer and artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I'll ask my artist if 
I can get a certain answer to something or like I'll ask her about what she's working on currently and so we can try to coordinate our work processes so that like we can implement the thing fully mm-hmm. um but oftentimes there's not like a coordinated effort i guess like we 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 like work on our own things and then come together as like things get finished gotcha mm-hmm. so th- there's multiple d- developers that are all kind of working on their own stuff and then you every once in a while get together and compare what you've done and make sure you're aligned yeah basically yeah okay um so that is kind of the if I want to say traditional way of doing things, and it's very aligned with kind of old waterfall um, kind of workflows where people are heavily siloed and you're you know working kind of through the the list of things that are getting done, but there's not necessarily much of a uniting vision on how like uh, what order they're doing and you know getting people together in teams and things sure. like that. So sure. just using your your kind of company as an example. So if I were to come in and work for your business and, yeah. and take a look at this, um, one of the first things I would be looking at is what all is what all skill sets are necessary to deliver the entire product. So you talked about an artist, right? So there's yeah. an artist. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they do probably like wireframes, then they do like media and things like that on the back end as well. Yeah. Um, is there any sound? Uh, I do the sound. You do sound yeah. as well. Okay, that's good. Um, so I'm assuming that there's probably a designer as well. Somebody maybe in addition to or is the artist. Uh, I. Uh, you mean like game design or? So it, I don't know what you do in your day job. So. Sure. Well, yeah, I guess I. I uh, my definition is game developer, and I. Um, okay, so you do work for a game studio yes. full time as well. Okay. Yes. Yeah, and so I uh, program. Uh, I do like the programming and the game design. Sure. So, sense of video games. I'm pretty familiar with video games. Um, <laughs> you know, you're gonna have sound. You're gonna have um, art. You're gonna have you know the actual programmer. Yeah. Um, you're gonna have QA. Yep. You're gonna have all of these skill sets, right? And these aren't necessarily titles in an agile world. These are skill sets. Okay. And the first um, one of the core kind of tenets of any agile team is that on the team you have all of the things you need to develop to deliver working product. Sure. Right. So you can't have a team that then has an external sound person that you have to like send work requests to and they like, you know, might get back to you in a day, they might get back to you in a week, mm-hmm. you know, they're not on your team. Yeah. So um, it's important for all those skill sets to be on the same team. Okay. That's the number one thing is we'd be looking to get however many people it takes mm-hmm. to get all of those skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, another big thing is that the people on the team should be cross-functional. So that's why I said earlier, it's good that you're doing some of the sound design and things like that. Yeah. You should be able to not just do your one discipline. You should be able to help out wherever is necessary. Yeah. Um, because in agile development, one of the things that we really focus on is we work, we focus on getting things done, right? Yeah. Not just getting work done, getting product done. Sure. So having, um, having, you know, a, a block of a video game where just like maybe there's wireframes of art and the physics are done and you have a character that can run through it. Mm-hmm. That's not done. Yeah. Because your customers don't want that. Right. So there's zero value in that. Um, the value only comes when it's actually done and your customer can consume it. Okay. Right. So having all of that end to end process all in the same team, you're focusing on getting a small chunk of your product able to be consumed and deliver value. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's again, why it's kind of a, it's a product focused mentality over a project one. It's a lot of times in a project, in old school projects, there isn't any value delivered until all the value is delivered. Yeah. Right? So I want to ask a little bit about that. Um, it's the company I work for is exploring Agile, um, but it's still very project-focused in its philosophy. And I think that that's kind of a, a tough thing if you're thinking about 
like as an indie studio or an indie developer, you might be making a game that you plan on working on for a really long time. There are lots of people who do that, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, multiplayer game and you plan on doing lots of updates or you plan on doing DLC regularly. But for also a lot of people, they, they get to done. It has a beginning, a middle and an end, and then they send it out there. It's in the world and they don't really work on it for a mm -hmm. while. Does that mean that agile is not compatible with that type of work or are you, or if, if that's not the conclusion we should reach, how do you translate that product mindset into a workflow that does seem to be project-based? So there's basically two different ways um, that are sometimes used in conjunction of doing uh, agile development. There's incremental and then there's iterative. Mm -hmm. And often you do incremental iterative, but that's, that's a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> so the way that I like to explain this to people um, is imagine that our investors... Um, and our C-level employees, that the thing that they really want is they want the Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. And I mean the actual painting. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Go to France. Right. So um, what we could do is we could construct a huge planning document that's going to, you know, do all of the requirements gathering for everything that needs to go into it. Note every single ounce of paint that's needed, everything like that, right? That's, all the heist be, materials we need yeah, to get right. into the Louvre. Wow, there is um, <laughs> Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah. Okay. Um, or we can, in Agile, we're going to do things a little differently. So what we might do in an Agile setting is um, we, if we're going to do iterative development, what we might first do is we might go to our stakeholders and say, okay, let's, let's really strip this back instead of saying, this is this final thing we want. Give me kind of the rough idea of what you're looking for. Like, you know, give me the themes. What are we supposed to feel when we're looking at this painting? Like, what, what, what do you want in this? Mm -hmm. And you, through some conversations, might get to, oh, we're looking for a woman in a pastoral setting, right? Yeah. Um, so your development team then will take that and they'll, they'll go back and they'll they're like, all right, woman with a, in a pastoral setting. And in their first sprint, what they might make is a line drawing. So it's got the whole outline of the Mona Lisa. It's got some of the background. You can see some of like the farmscape in the background, things like that, right? Yeah. And you bring that to your to uh, your leadership team and your you know your stakeholders. You say, okay, here we go. Woman in pastoral setting. What do you think? And they look at it and they say, yeah, that's that's actually really like kind of what we're looking for. But you know what we really could use is um we could use like a little more kind of like shading and like contrast to light and dark things like that. Can we maybe take a look at that? And then you take it back, you go through another iteration. Mm -hmm. okay. Take the whole painting, you add shading. Third sprint, maybe you add color. Fourth sprint, maybe you add some more detail, right? Yeah. So each time through, uh, you're adding some new completed layer on top of your product. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing and why and what's so powerful about this kind of this way of working is your investors don't know what they want until they see it. Mm -hmm. So we just said there was, you know, what, four sprints. There's each one of those sprints. We, we delivered product that was potentially shippable. There's someone out there probably would buy the line drawing. Yeah. There's someone out there that probably buy the shaded drawing. There's probably someone out there that would dry the basic, you know, buy the uh, basic colored drawing. Um, and you get a chance to be able to show each one of those to your stakeholders. And at some point they're going to be able to say, you know, that's enough. That's good. Mm -hmm. And in an old school kind of way of doing it, you're not going to know until you deliver the final thing, all of it, all at once. And they still might go, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is too much. That bridge. that bridge is bad. I really don't right. like the color on those buttons. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. What right? is with her smile? Right. So the key phrase is potentially shippable increment. Yeah. Right. Um, it doesn't need to be the thing that your customers eventually buy. 
but it does need to be something that if you were to stop development today, yeah. that you could reap some kind of value from it. Okay. So every single sprint value is delivered in full mm -hmm. and then you're moving on on the next one. If something of value wasn't delivered, you didn't do anything. None of your work counts. Hmm. Right. And it's, it's, it, and it, it, it's basically like leading you towards you like setting your goal pulse, I guess for two weeks and like yep. getting something finished so that like, at least you have something there and then you can do something with that. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, one <laughs> of the, cool. one of the phrases you'll hear a lot in kind of the, the scrum community is that scrum is the art of the work not done. Mm. You're trying to maximize the amount of work not done. Okay. So you're trying to get only the most valuable stuff at any given moment. And eventually what you're building is going to become of so low value to your stakeholders. They're going to say, we don't want to pay for anymore. We're good. Yeah. How do you, so one thing that can happen is like people get really excited about a, like in a, let's say in like a game environment where you're making a game, people get really excited like, oh, I want to add this new feature. And then you end up getting scope creep because people want to add things in the game that it doesn't really need. How do you keep that to a minimum? How do you, how do you make people understand that you can't do all of it? Sure. Yeah. Um, first, I wanted to finish my thought about the Mona Lisa because oh. I wanted to go through incremental okay. development. And oh, then yeah. we'll pivot back to that idea because okay. that is a really important one. So we went through iterative development. Incremental is a slightly different approach okay. where... Um, instead of doing uh, kind of the iterative, you know, uh, more detail each time, incremental would be, imagine we cut the Mona Lisa up into six squares mm -hmm. and we delivered the bottom left square. Okay. And then we would show that to our stakeholders and then, but it's complete. It's everything, yeah. all the detail, everything. So that's something that might be more appropriate in sort of a game design world mm -hmm. is, um, for instance, delivering, you know, an entire level or yeah. a block. Or um, in Fingence, you create a whole new character and you yeah. deliver that final character. Right. So maybe incremental is the better approach. And then often you can have the combination between the two. So maybe you deliver one sixth of the Mona Lisa in a line drawing. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can you can combine the two together as appropriate for your product. Okay. Cool. Cool. That yeah. makes sense. But to go back to kind of your Yeah. Product. Pretend I said that. Now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the uh, the role of what's called in Scrum of the product owner, that's where they come in. Remember we talked about earlier about how they're the, they're the what. They answer the question, what are we building? Mm -hmm. So they're in charge of something called the product backlog. Um, and they determine what's in that product backlog and in what order it, 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 um, it lives. Uh, so when somebody comes to the team or to the product owner or to anyone, um, they, and they say, Hey, this cool new feature, I really like this idea. We should do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that goes through the product owner who the buck stops with them and they determine what's going into the product. Okay. And they may say, yeah, that actually is a great idea. I'm going to throw out my backlog and I'm going to take a look at where it falls kind of in order, right? The, the product owner is often spending a lot of their day-to-day -day working in that backlog. Okay. They're having conversations with stakeholders. They are figuring out with their customer base what actually is important to their customer base. What is the most valuable thing for us to work on right now? And what order of value should all of our work lie in? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so the most important thing is that that is because that's the role of the product owner. Once that work gets pulled into what you were talking about earlier, a sprint. Yeah. The developers have no authority to scope creep. They have to build the minimum viable thing that can satisfy the requirements that the product owner has given for that work. 
So if you have developers that are on the team and they're starting to scope creep and add things, they're kind of violating the sovereignty of that, you know, product owner in their, in their domain. Okay. Um, so that would be a conversation between them, usually facilitated by a scrum master, mm. um, as to, you know, Hey, developer, you're, you're slowing us down because you're building all this stuff that the PO didn't even want. Right. Yeah. And maybe a conversation with the PO on how to more clearly articulate where the boundaries are of what they want built and what they don't want built. That makes sense. Yeah. One thing that we run into a lot is like we have a, a lot of technical debt in our software that we build at my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and what can happen is like we're in a file, we're adding a feature that the product owner wants, but there's some like backend stuff that the, we'll never see, like no one will ever notice, but it would make the workflow in the future better. Mm-hmm. So it's hard, like, We've been trying to figure out, like, how do we get those into the backlog? Because the product owner does not care about them, mm-hmm. <laughs> except for in the abstract, like, oh, it'll be faster next time. But, like, that's hard to prioritize in the backlog, like, yeah. versus this new feature that my users are really wanting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that really comes down to sizing. So, like earlier, I was saying, each, you know, each kind of, uh, piece of this puzzle, they have their own complete uh, sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So sizing comes down to the developers, 100% the developers. The PO gets no say in how big they size something. So a lot of you will be familiar with story points. That's one way of doing it. There's t-shirt sizes. You can size it in fruit if you want, you know, um, grape, orange, you know, (laughs) pomegranate, (laughs) uh, melon, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, It doesn't really matter what you use. Okay. But the development team gets to decide what size something is. So if the development team looks at a piece of work and they say, there's all this backend stuff we have to do to make this done right. Because remember, they answer the question 100% how. Only they can answer how. Okay. So if they decide that the the how, the right way to build this is to do all that backend work, then they're going to size that thing appropriately and say, well, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, that's a 120 point story because this thing has all this backend stuff that we must do and it's the right way to do it. And the, the whole magic of this happens in the negotiation between the, the product owner and the dev team and the dev team saying, this is super large and we want to do it right. And the product owner figuring out, okay, so this is really, really valuable, but it's also very expensive, expensive in time because it's going to take up, you know, the entire sprint, for instance. Right? Mm-hmm. So then they have to now make, uh, you know, um, return on investment decisions as to whether something is, you know, not just valuable, but valuable enough to spend the amount of time associated with it. So if things, if technical debt is accruing, that's usually where the problem lies is that developers are not being firm enough on this is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, no one else is going to tell you what the right way to do it is. It's self-managing, self-organizing teams. And if you're allowing yourself to build things with technical debt, then that's on the development team. Interesting. So how, how do you create those tasks? How do you like determine what? How, how do you how do you determine what things you need to work on for this sprint? Yeah, so that's uh, that's something that in Scrum happens during uh, an event called sprint planning. Okay. Um, so your product owner has what's called the product backlog, mm-hmm. and then your team during a sprint is going to have what's called a sprint backlog. Mm. Um, they're two separate entities, but they do communicate between each other. So the sprint backlog is derived from the product backlog. Mm -hmm. So during sprint planning, which is usually the first day of any given sprint, um, the dev team and the product owner will all sit down together and the product owner will say, hey, here's the next 10 things that I want to do. 
Mm-hmm. And prior to this, you'll have you'll have refined those. You'll know what size they are. They'll all have their right acceptance criteria, definitions of done, all these things. And um, you'll sit down and you'll look at it and you say, okay, let's look at our yesterday's weather. Mm-hmm. How many points of velocity have we done in the past? Usually a method that I'll use um, when I'm a scrum master on a team is I'll take the last five sprints, I'll drop the top sprint and the bottom sprint, and then average the remaining three. Okay. So just to get a quick number of, okay, this is, this is you know sort of an outlier resistant number of what our velocity looks like. Um, and we'll use that number to plan to, mm. and you don't pull in any more work than that number. Okay. Ever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> For no reason yeah. ever mm-hmm. product owner wants to squeeze three more things in. No, mm-hmm. because the sprint backlog is not owned by the product owner. Sprint backlog is owned by the team. Okay. So the team is a leadership uh, entity as well. They need to take responsibility for their sprints and for their work. And they need to be firm on saying, this is how much work we can get done in a sprint. And we're not going to promise to do any more. So during that kind of sprint planning event, you're essentially creating a contract between the product owner and the team that says in the next two weeks, if you're doing two week sprints, we will get this amount of work done, no more, no less. Mm-hmm. And that's really important concept, no more or no, no less. Okay. So if you finish early, the team should be able to decide what's best for them to do next. Yeah. So if that means, well, we finished on you know Wednesday and our sprint doesn't end until Friday, Maybe the, the most likely answer is probably, oh, we'll pull the next thing in the backlog in from the product backlog to the sprint backlog. Mm-hmm. Get some extra done. Mm-hmm. That's how you trend your velocity upwards is by pulling in extra work once all of the other work is done. Okay. You don't pull in until everything else is done. Right. Um, or maybe they decide, you know, we've been really, really tasked lately and we've been kind of broken down. Let's all take a day off. Mm-hmm. In an, a truly agile environment, that should be an option for the team. Because yeah. the contract that they, that they agreed to with the product owner was to deliver that amount in that increment, no more, no less. Yeah. Um, usually that doesn't happen because in well-running agile organizations, especially ones that would agree to that kind of thing, people aren't working a ton of overtime. They're working very steady weeks. Yeah. Um, and instead, usually if developers aren't pulling in work, usually it's um, they're going to be doing something like, hey, there's this skill that we know we're rusty on. We wanted to have time to be able to do some work on that and learn this new thing. You know, uh, we've always wanted to do go look at Kubernetes on AWS, right? And they take a couple of days to go workshop that stuff and figure out, you know, what, what's all up there. So, um, but the team is empowered to be able to make that decision as to what their best thing is to do with the rest of their sprint. Sure. Um, so, does that kind of answer your question yeah. about how work kind of comes in? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's that conversation between the the product owner and the team, um, and it's every level of it is a contract. At the sprint level, it's a contract to get all the items in the sprint done. At the individual, what are called product backlog items, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of places call them stories. At the individual product backlog item uh, level, inside you'll have your acceptance criteria. As long as the work completes all those acceptance criteria, it's done. Mm-hmm. The product owner can't reject it. Right. Okay. If because it's important that they're writing a well-formed product backlog item that has all the requirements needed, so that they hand it off to the developers, and the developers get to determine all on their own how, and they just take it, run with it, build it, build something that satisfies all those criteria, and nothing more, mm-hmm. and then they ship it. So if it doesn't quite hit the mark, and the product owner sees that, that's a good opportunity for them to maybe get some coaching from their scrum master on how to better write. Backlog items with more clarity, add acceptance criteria. Maybe they take another iteration at that thing and they say, oh, we needed three more things in here that I didn't think of. But, you know, it's my fault. I didn't put them in there. Does that make sense? Yeah. One thing that's been super helpful at my job is we 
for a while we didn't have a, like the scrum master position was open. Mm -hmm. And so like a lot of the separations of where power was got real murky and we had problems that way. And now that we have a scrum master again, it's so nice to be, have them take some of that saying no away. Mm -hmm. Like, like you can say to the scrum master, like, Hey, product people are want us to do this other thing. Should we say yes to that? And they can be like, no, I'll talk to them and be like, you can't tell them <laughs> how to do it. I think that's one of the really important roles of a scrum master is to keep those lines as clear as possible. And it's, do we want to talk about the scrum master role a little bit? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> said it a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of misconceptions about what a scrum master is and isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and every place you go is going to have a different idea ranging from just, oh, they're a project manager to, you know, they are a full on scrum master and anything in between. Um, what you were just talking about is, is a fairly typical implementation of a scrum master, but it's not right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so a good scrum master would not say no for you. They would coach you how to say no. So a scrum master is only one thing. They're a coach. They have no deliverables. They have no authority. They have nothing that they, they actually do or deliver within the company. Okay. Um, and their only role is to spend about a third of their time coaching the dev team a third of the time coaching the product owner and a third of the time coaching the wider organization on best practices in an agile implementation. They are a coach and they're a facilitator. So they don't run meetings, they facilitate them. So if they see conversation is going off the rails, they might pull the reins back in and say, hey, we're here to talk about X, not Y and Z. Can we refocus back on that? Right? So they facilitate and they coach. That's it. If they're the ones saying no to anyone for the dev team, they're doing something wrong. They're there to coach you how to better say no yourself. And and how 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 do you go about doing that? How do you go about coaching somebody to better say no? Do they do they do you help them find information that will uh, make more sense to the product uh, the product owner? Or? So it really depends. Uh, it's very contextual. You know, sure. it depends on the developer. I'm working with the team. I'm working with the product owner. I'm working with the you know many different things, but. Um, it can range is range from anything from, you know, individual one on one conversations where we talk about the value of saying no and good ways of saying it. We practice and maybe we'll do role play and they'll be able to, um, have an opportunity to, to gracefully say, you know, I'm sorry, but that's not really something I can make a decision on. Um, scope really is in the, is in the wheelhouse of the product owner. I'm going to have to have you, you know, go talk to him. That kind of thing, deflecting away from their responsibility or when it is their responsibility, being able to take charge of that and own it and be responsible for it and be proud of it. Um, so it might be one-on-one -on -one conversation. It might be something that's a facilitated, mediated conversation with the offender. Maybe it's, you know, something where this one person has over and over and over again been um, usurping power and been sliding in extra work into the team. That never happens, right? <laughs> um, that person, mm -hmm. they might get an email or a Slack from me, or I might knock on their door and I might say, hey, uh, you know, Jim, you, you open to a little bit of coaching. I've got a couple of things I want to talk to you about. And then we might sit down and we might talk about it. And I might tell him, you know, what the effects of what's happening, um, his requests are having on the team. Maybe he doesn't even realize. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times people, you know, on the business side, they don't understand the amount of work that can go into building something even trivial. So they might, with all, you know, good intent, think that they're making a 20 minute request when they're making a 20 hour request. And the authority of their title and their position carries such weight that, you know, some little peon developer isn't going to say no. And now you've thrown something way off track, right? Yeah. Um, so a scrum master has the, the ability and the authority and the expectation to be able to coach anybody in the organization on that. You don't have a scrum master in my job. Most places don't, even okay. when they say they do. Ah, oh, okay. Most of them have, um, 
executive assistants that manage Jira and uh, project managers that, uh, you know, are determining what stuff is getting worked on each day. Yep. That's where we're at. Mm-hmm. So, so the project owner is, are they the ones who are supposed to develop these tasks? That's the- yeah, so the, the, the product owner is. So the typical workflow, um, you know, a, a well-run product backlog should be open and transparent. Yeah. Um, everybody in the business should be able to see it and should be able to add things to it. Okay. Um, oh, okay. And when they initially add something, it might be as simple as a one-sentence thing that says, um, hey, I had this sweet idea for Finjin's character that's, you know, built off of uh, uh, a gray whale, <laughs> you yes. know? Yeah. Right? And that might be the whole thing. And that's all the requirement you need to be able to put an item into the product backlog. That's just a placeholder for a conversation. Mm-hmm. So the product owner at some point will see, oh, hey, they probably got an email alert set up from Jira that says, hey, there's a new item on your product backlog. They'll go look at it and they'll say, ah, gray whale. That came from Jim. Interesting. All right, let's go talk to Jim. So he'll set up a, you know, a conversation with Jim, go talk to him and flesh it out. See, you know, what do you actually think about this? Where do you see the value in it? You know, what, what kind of things did you think this gray whale was going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he will then flesh that out into a more clear picture of something that can then be handed off with acceptance criteria to the team. Um, but it will never rise to the top of the backlog without going through many rounds of refinement first with the product owner and the stakeholder who suggested it. And then eventually with the team to be able to clarify any technical blockers that might be there and to size it. And then eventually sometime in the future, it'll make it to the top of the backlog and be pulled into a sprint. Okay, but it's so it's not on the developer. Oh, so the developers can make tasks. They can. They they well, they can't make tasks. Oh, because product backlog items are not tasks. Okay, they're product to be shipped. They are sure. value. They represent something that is actually going to be built. Okay. Um, none of it says anything about tasks. Mm, okay. Doesn't say how it's going to be done. Remember, because yeah. that if you were building that, then you're you're now usurping the power of the dev team. So subtasking and tasking it out is something that happens um, in the second half of sprint planning. Typically, the product owner will leave the room and then the dev team will sit with all the items that they pulled into the sprint and they will task them all out, create the tasks as subtasks to uh, that, you know, uh, parent backlog item. Wow, this is all going to be very useful for work. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) I'll send you the bill. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Um, um, Okay, so we've talked a little bit about like uh, tools that you use, like Jira and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, What, what? are the benefit of these tools that you can use in, in agile? Um, well, to be completely clear, I hate them all. Oh, uh, they're okay. all, they're all terrible. Okay. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm clearly not paid by Atlassian. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think they're the best of a bad lot. Hmm. Um, the, the issue that I have is that these companies that are creating tools for agile, um, you know, we'll use Atlassian cause they're the big player. They're trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. Right. So you've got stuff that is is derived from uh, XP, extreme programming. That's another agile methodology. You've got stuff from Kanban. You've got stuff from Lean. You've got stuff from Scrum. You've got stuff from you know uh, Safe, which is a Scrum derivative. You've got all these different uh, you know things that they're trying to market their tool as appropriate for all those different disciplines. Mm. And it's become kind of a Frankenstein, and you have to have a full time Jira administrator to make it really run right, and it's it's really kind of a nightmare. Um, I tend to, when I work with clients, I really, really, really encourage them to have fully co-located teams. So they're not, when I say co-located, I don't just mean they're in the same building or in the same city. I mean, they're in the same room. Okay. So all of us, the artist, the sound designer, maybe our salesperson, we're all sitting in the same room together. All the people attached to this product. 
Um, and I usually just use physical assets. I use sticky notes. I use whiteboards. I use things like that. I might have a digital version of it that is a little more easy to do like a 200 item backlog in, right? Yeah. Uh, pro tip, your backlog should never be 200 items. Um, but <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but I've just started working on story number six that was created in our backlog. Nice. <laughs> so sometimes things are planned in advance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but to just to back up, um, the flexibility of just something as simple as a whiteboard and sticky notes, that can be all things to all people. Yeah. So yeah. no matter what your needs are, it's very easy for me to rearrange those and turn them into literally a million different uh, iterations and different activities and different ways of managing work and, and visualizing that work. Uh, as soon as you get into a product built uh, by, by a company that's on you know, a, a piece of software, you all of a sudden have these very strict limitations to what you can do. Um, and people start using different terminology where I'm using product backlog item, but in Jira, you're assaulted with story, 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 yeah. story. You're assaulted with Epic. Mm. What is an Epic? Epic's nothing. Mm. That's, um, I, I don't even know the origination. I think they might've made it up Okay. because an Epic is a collection of stories. Right. Right. Like that's not something from any agile methodology. I think Jira just made it up. Mm. <laughs> I believe that. So I'm not really a big fan of, of any of those tools. That being said. There is a reality of the marketplace and you're very, very lucky if you actually have a fully collated team sitting in their own little war room, right? Yeah. Um, the reality is, is that most teams these days are highly distributed, whether they're overseas or not, even if they're all in the same city. You're having people working from home. You're having people in the office. You're having people on one floor and the next floor. They're all over the place, right? In that case, there are tools that are pretty much essential. So um, something along the lines of Jira to be able to show, to visualize your work. That's really important to visualize your work at all times, to be able to see it where it is. Um, so Jira or, you know, there's, there's a bunch of other ones out there too. Mm-hmm. Um, something um, that I, something I often use that I, I think is really important for distributed teams is something called planning poker. Okay. Um, so there's a couple different tools online. Um, you can just search it on, on the internet and um, that it provides you a way to do voting on sizing. Uh, in a distributed team. So you can do blind votes. So nobody is like just shouting out their vote over, you know, the web conference or something like this. We're typing Um, it into the chat. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Um, Right. And there's all kinds of, you know, different integrations with Jira and all that fun stuff. So um, some type of planning poker tool, Um, you need to have a really, really, really good uh, distributed kind of link. So you need to have like, you know, Zoom or something like that. And you need to make sure it's always working and, and, you know, is suited to your, uh, to your needs. Um, I can't really stress that enough. Um, I, on a lot of the teams I work with that have been distributed, I put in a very firm rule that if you're working, you're in the web conference mm-hmm. all day, Yeah, all day. Mm-hmm. So the team might be five people and there's five people sitting in there and they talk with each other if yeah. they're distributed. If they're going to go off and pair, they're pairing via web conference and they have their webcams on and they can see each other. It's important in all of this, at least I believe that we always maintain the humanity of, you know, the people that are around us Yeah, and being able to see their face and the way they're reacting to things you're saying is really important. Yeah. Um, so that's a often neglected tool that I think is really, really important to invest in is, is, you know, webcams, good mics and, uh, and a good web conference solution. Um, and aside from that, you know, the, those, the rest is going to be very, you know, uh, dependent on your organization and their needs, but really need something to visualize your work. You need something to be able to communicate both visually in web conference and then also obviously via text. So Slack or Skype or something like that. Okay. And then you need something to be able to uh, facilitate planning. Okay. Okay. Wow. This is all very valuable. 
And that's we'll not even getting into the whole world of like real tools, like DevOps tools and oh, CICD yeah. and all that fun stuff. Because mm-hmm. that's all a part of Agile as well. Ooh, letters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> continuous integration, continuous deployment. Letters. Yeah. It's serious when there are letters involved. Yeah, we could have a whole other podcast just about that topic. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for all of that. Yeah. <laughs> all of that information. That's great. Do you have any um, other things you want to bring up in relation to Agile that you haven't that we haven't asked you about yet? Yeah. So there's another kind of layer of of what I do that's um, you know everything we've talked about so far is the whole like it's the book it's the you know it's the the Scrum book yeah. you know you go to a class and learn all this stuff. Um, I'm not saying anything new that no one has ever heard before. You know, you guys are all familiar with this stuff from other Agile places. Um, one of the things that I I work a lot on, um, almost more than I work on the scrum stuff is working on sort of the human element of, of what it means to be in a workplace and what mm-hmm. it means to do creative work. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's something that it's, it's infinitely frustrating because it's, it's something that, that that's solved. We have all of the data behind brain chemistry, behind sociology, behind psychology. We know all of the things we need to know about how to optimize our work experience and how to allow people to be more creative more of the time. Mm-hmm. And we don't do any of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's uh, there's some really great work that uh, came out of the Harvard Business School that looked at um, cortisol levels and um, and creative work. Because if you look at what we're doing, sure, it's technology work, but it's all creative work. Mm-hmm. We're getting paid for being creative, for innovating, for for bringing something out of nothing, right? Yeah. So the brain pathways that are used when you're doing that work are no different than the brain pathways that you know, Beethoven used to write his symphonies mm-hmm. or that Stephen King used to write his novels, right? Um, they're the exact same thing. And if you get out, if you include tech in sort of the, the creative sort of arts world, right? If you loot them in, look at the way that we manage tech and the way that we have employees try to produce creative work versus how those other creative works are kind of um, produced, right? You don't, you don't have Stephen King sat down and t- tell him that he's got to be in his chair eight hours a day. 40 hours a week. Right. And then sometimes be there at them, nine. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you don't tell them that, well, you know, you got a deadline, you got to do a death march. Mm. And, uh, you know, some, one of your readers who's going to buy 10 copies has decided that he wants chapter 12 changed, right? Mm-hmm. The creative mind doesn't work that way. Right. And there's actual neurochemistry behind it that, uh, as cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone, as that, uh, as those rise, it actually very much inhibits the creative process. So if you have teams that are stressed and have, you know, high cortisol, they, it doesn't matter how much time they spend. They're going to be less productive. They're going to be less creative and they're going to do less good work for you. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I work with businesses on is how to create environments where their teams um, feel safe and empowered and they feel secure so that they can start to lower down those stress hormones and be able to enter kind of the, the neurochemical space where they can actually do creative work the best uh, way possible it it really comes down to establishing a workplace trust um and that's a lot harder for a lot of business leaders to do than than you would think um you know it it comes down to tiny little things sometimes like for instance what what does filling out a timesheet represent it represents that somebody somewhere along a chain doesn't believe that you're doing any work and you got to tell them what you've worked on and when you worked on it yeah so they don't trust you Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that represents a lack of trust yeah that's true so right there that's one little piece where there's, there's one little piece of lack of trust. Um, you know, uh, having the way that your one-on-ones with your manager are delivered, 
if you're having to report kind of what you've worked on and like all these different things, like there can be lack of trust there. There can be lack of trust in, um, you know, the way that metrics are done. If they're measuring individuals that, uh, you know, on a cross-functional team and they're measuring them in ways that don't really reflect their day-to-day job. Mm-hmm. And then they're using these measurements in, I'm sure you've all heard of the lovely stack rank way of uh, evaluating employees. Oh, yeah. um, Stack ranking is, it's, it's an abomination. Uh, okay. It's the, used by a lot of large corporations to, um, basically assign a performance value number to all their employees and some uh, corporations have policies where they must lay off the bottom 10% of their people every year. Wow. And then they'll just buy that number. The bottom 10% are just gone. Hmm. No matter how well they did. Yeah, that's terrible. And um, I actually worked at a stack rank company once um, and my ranking as uh, the scrum master for the site reliability engineering team was lower than the front desk gals. So in that way, I was actually in more danger of being laid off than the girl who worked the front desk. Mm-hmm even though I was a incredibly important core member of delivering our product where she just said hello to people as they walked in. So um, that's another thing that starts to break trust, the way that you evaluate your employees and the way that you measure them and the way you determine whether they're doing good work or not. Right. So there's all these things that, um, that kind of go into creating your workplace culture and none of them have to do with having pizza on Fridays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> How does free beer work into all that? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know the quantitative, you know, uh, reduction in cortisol of, uh, of free beer. Um, but a lot of those things like, you know, free food, free beer, pizza on Fridays, a lot of them are just gimmicks yeah. to cover up on the fact that your fundamental work culture is one that is not trusting and is not putting your creative employees into the headspace where they can do their best creative work. Yeah. yeah. Rather than tackle that very difficult to tackle issue and really own it and fix it. It's, well, what can we do to make things, you know, make things a little better for the next few weeks? Right. Right. Free beer. Right. Exactly. So Scrum plays nicely with that. Like a lot of the things I was talking about, the separation of powers, right? You're developing a team owning the how 100%, right? That empowerment and that, tr- that, that re- represents trust. Mm-hmm. It says we trust you to get this stuff done. One of the key things to making all this work is to hire good people and trust them to do the work and get out of their way. Yeah. Right. So I, uh, I just, um, we've talked, you know, you and I were married, so we talk about this a lot, yeah. um, <laughs> but one thing we haven't really talked about is your take on how some of these, some of the toxic dynamics that scrum and other agile, um, methodologies are, are intended to address and, and eliminate, um, how some of those toxic method- methodologies might have contributed to some of the bigger fiascos in game development over the last few years, right? It's been, I feel like it's been a drama filled couple of years in terms of games that have been released and were not well received. Yeah. Um, and you know, the death marches and there's a lot of talk of unionization because of the really, really difficult working conditions across the industry. Yeah. Um, as an agile coach and practitioner, Eric, how do you, like, what do you see? What do you, what is your, what is your preliminary diagnosis there? Specifically in kind of the games industry and, and some of that news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of that news has been coming out of, you know, large AAA studios right. that are still using that old style of, of business, right? Where they have the exact idea of what's going to be shipped at the end because they're pitching it to investors for billions of dollars, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're, we're in an industry that is, you know, larger than movies. You know, mm-hmm. there's games that are making insane amounts of money and have, insane amounts of money being put into them at the front. Um, so that business is still being managed in 
sort of that old mentality of trying to tell the investors exactly what they're investing in and then feeling obligated, probably by contract, to deliver that thing. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's often a big gap, and this is something I see in my clients all the time. There's a big gap between the way the work's done and the way the work is sold. And in a truly agile organization, you can't have that. You can't have your business selling this kind of waterfall-y type project with a defined scope and a fixed budget and a fixed duration. You can't have them selling that and then expect an agile implementation where you're doing the work in sprints to work. So you have to be selling it up front as an agile uh, you know, product. It often works best in sort of SaaS you know, solutions where, where you're delivering a, a subscription product that can change at any time, um, that type of thing. But there's no reason that it can't work in game development. You just are looking at the reality that if you limit budget, if you limit scope, you determine exactly what the scope's going to be, and then you limit time. What can flex? What's left? Any guesses? Uh. <laughs> Wait, say it again. You limit scope. Limit scope. Yep. So you've determined exactly what's going to be shipped. You limit time. You say when it needs to be shipped by, and you limit budget because you're only putting so much money into it. What's, what's the only thing left that can change? And it's no surprise that it's crickets. Because most businesses forget this. Yeah. And this is the thing that always changes. Quality. Oh, oh right. right. Yeah, right. If, you, if you fast, lock all of those gooder. things, <laughs> if you lock all of those things, the only thing that can flex is quality. Mm -hmm. So you make crap work. Yeah. That's it. Right? You ship with bugs. Mm -hmm. Yep. You build up technical debt, cut all kinds of corners, and you, you ship bad product yeah. that met all the scope requirements, hit the budget, and hit the timeline. But it was all terrible quality. And in Scrum, uh, or really in any Agile, basically the only thing that we're locking is quality. We'll make good work all the time. And we will ship product that is done and is ready for your customers, and it will be good. But scope's not fixed. You can quit work whenever you want. You can stop paying us and say, this is it. This is my product. We're done. I don't need the, the coloring and the line drawing, right? I'm good. I just saved a ton of money, right? Um, you can continue on further than you initially thought. You might've said, I initially want a line drawing. And they're like, wait, 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 hold on. Color. Can I pay you for another sprint? Right? So all those other things are, are floating. Your scope, your duration, your budget. Um, the only thing you fix is quality. So that's the big difference, I think. And I think is probably one of the contributing things to these games having such, such terrible issues with that um, is all of those things are fixed. And the only thing that's left to go is quality. And they're not making a good experience. Or they are making a good experience at the expense of employees. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Qu quality of the working environment, the quality of the experience of being an employee. Yeah. Yep. Ended it on a slightly down note, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, but it it's not like this isn't being talked about. Yeah. And I know it's like, okay, been talking about things forever. As long as people have been working for other people, there have probably have been discussions around how the working conditions can improve, but mm -hmm. um, we've got really good tools for dealing with it now. I think um, it just kind of was back to what you were saying at the beginning of the show, Eric. It's nice that you haven't experienced a lot of that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, that is, it's just, yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge paradigm shift. I yeah. think a lot of work culture is grounded in the idea that you lay out your requirements and then you do this thing and, you know, come hell or high water, you're going to get the work done. And that's, that's applauded. Those kinds of workplace heroics are applauded. Mm -hmm. But like, if your people are staying, if your people are working 70 hour weeks, it's because 
like as a leader, as a manager, you didn't make the tough decisions. Right. So you're pushing that difficulty down on the people who are working for you. And that's, that's a failure on your part as a leader, as a manager. Yep. So that's got to change. That's, that, that's the flip, the switch that's got to flip. That's an uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did it. Cool. Cool. Um, can sure. we find you on the internet? Uh, nowhere. I'm a ghost. Oh, yeah. nice. Um, I'm really not on social media at all. Okay. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's actually pretty difficult to get a hold of me on the internet. But I'm sure you guys, if uh, any listeners want to get a hold of me, they can they can contact you guys. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, if you have uh, any questions about agile or anything that you want to ask, um, yeah, we will forward your questions on. Am I the first I guess you ever had that's just like, nah, dude, I don't do any of that. Um, there, have been, <laughs> there have been some guests that aren't really on social media. Uh, I guess Lane isn't really on social media. Yeah, no, so he is not. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Lane. <laughs> <laughs> so no, you're not the first. <laughs> yeah, no, it's you know, it's it's one of the quirks of of kind of the way that I do work is I I very 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 much prefer face to face interaction. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to get in touch with Eric, tweet at Ellen B Johnson. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. She, you know, I, I don't want to reduce my wife to being my <laughs> secretary, but, um, you know, she, she, she's got a lot of good stuff going on in her own right. So Very true. for sure. That's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or are nice like us. We really need to know you're out there. So leave a review and tell all your friends too. and send us any questions you got about Agile. Um, we want to hear or how your organization does it be interesting to know um we also want to hear directly from you so follow us on twitter and all the other things at nice games club let us know how we're doing send us your topic ideas and ask us your questions lastly you can find more about the show your nice hosts our nice guest as well as get all of the links and notes from this and other episodes at nicegames.club so until we start again remember to play nice and make nice Uh, but she is definitely the only person with Twitter in our family. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs don't maintain their own Twitter accounts. That's no. <laughs> true. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.